0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not so famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's The Explorers Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to so the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome. The History of the Great War, episode 96. A big thank you goes out to Kel this week for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon, over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar, where he now has access to a pretty decent library of special Patreon-only episodes. Last week, we covered the last of our episodes on July 1st, 1916. That means that this week we will take a step back and do a bit of an appraisal of everything that has happened on that day. We will start off today by just talking about some basic numbers and statistics, before we roll into how it had affected the British and German armies. We will then discuss a good amount of why some British attacks failed and some succeeded. A lot of this topic has already been discussed over the previous episodes, but hopefully I can do a bit of summarization and analysis to make it all a bit more clear. The last part of our episode today, we will discuss what the British plan to do next. They were not even close to being ready to give up on their great attack, and the only question was what precisely they should do in the coming days and weeks, and as it would turn out, months. The fighting of July 1st, of course, did not end when the sun started to go down. There were many units still fighting throughout the afternoon and into the evening, especially where the British had made at least some amount of progress. There were a few areas where there were truces between the British and the Germans that allowed the wounded to be brought in and helped, but that was definitely not the case in all or even most areas. It was more prevalent in areas where the British attacks completely failed, and they did not really pose any continued threat to the defenders. In some areas, it went beyond just a simple truce, and the Germans actively helped wounded British soldiers where they could, especially when it became very apparent that the British medics and stretcher bearers were completely overwhelmed with the job in front of them. An example of one of these areas was in front of Beaumont Hamel. In this area, the British had lost a ton of men very quickly, and all in pretty much the same place. During the night of July 1st, the Germans went out into the area between the lines to help the British. And here is Unter-Officer Otto Leys describing how it all happened on his sector of the front. Everything falls. The attack is dead. Our own casualties are severe. The enemy casualties are unimaginable. In front of our divisional sector lie the British in companies in battalions, mowed down in rows and swept away. From no man's land, the space between the positions, comes one great moan. The battle dies away. It seems to be paralyzed at so much utter misery and despair. First aid men hasten around the area. A complete British medical team with many stretcher bearers and unfurled red cross flags appear from somewhere. It is a rare and deeply moving sight in trench warfare. Where to begin? Whimpering and moaning confronts them from almost every square meter. Our own first aiders, who are not required elsewhere, go forward to bandage the wounded and deliver the enemy carefully to their own people. Here is Captain Reginald Lindsay Renton of the London Regiment 169th Brigade, 56th Division, as he describes what happened on his sector of the front, and how the truce came to a quick beginning and also a very quick end. Quote, a figure was observed standing up in the German trenches, making friendly signals, which turned out to be an appeal for a truce. Eventually this was agreed to, and both sides went out to collect their wounded. The Germans were very particular about who went out and fired at and wounded some men who started out still carrying their rifles. Both sides then proceeded to collect their wounded. There were many Germans who had been taken prisoners and sent back, but got wounded or killed crossing no man's land. The higher command had been rung up and asked to suspend all artillery fire, but unfortunately after a sort cessation, whether through necessity or ignorance of the situation, the guns started firing again. The Germans thereupon intimated that they would give our men ten minutes to get back, then the truce would come to an end. Owing to this, it was feared that many who might have been saved were missed." Quote. It is unfortunate that it was impossible for everyone who needed help to get it, and much of this was due to just sheer quantity. As always, when we're on the backside of a big attack, let's talk some numbers. We start with the defenders. The defenders. And for the Germans, their losses had been high by normal standards. But of course, this action was not a normal situation. In total, the Germans had suffered around 13,000 casualties, although that number is a bit shaky for a few different reasons. The first was just normal slight inaccuracies on the part of German casualty numbers. And the second was how the Germans reported their casualties. We know that the Germans lost about 20,000 men during the fighting in the first 10 days of July, but we don't have much more detailed information than that. This is because the German army did not record casualties per day, but instead in 10-day blocks, which is why we only can make some assumptions about what specifically happened on July 1st or during the bombardment that preceded it. Part of that 13,000 number also includes several thousand casualties, mostly taken on the southern end of the attack. While the German numbers are shaky, the French numbers are even worse. Estimates on French casualties on July 1st seem to vary pretty widely. I've seen numbers as low as 1,500, which seems impossibly low to me, and then up to about 7,000 or 8,000 casualties. I'm more inclined to believe that the real numbers was somewhere near the higher end of this range, but I don't really have any evidence for that. These numbers seem tiny and almost normal, especially when compared to what happened to the British. The top line number, and the number that everyone remembers, is that the British suffered 57,740 casualties on July 1st, and of those casualties, 19,240 were killed. Just the exactness of these numbers should should say a lot about how much study and research has went into this specific day over the last century. This is easily the worst single day for the British army in its history, and in fact, this day's casualties would exceed the numbers for the Crimea, Boer, and Korean wars all combined. Those were much smaller conflicts, of course, but we're talking about a single day here, and it really was not even a single day. Because most of those casualties did not happen over the 24-hour period, but instead in just a few hours in the morning. I don't have an hour-by-hour breakdown of what was happening, but I would not be surprised if 90% of the casualties suffered by the British on July 1st happened before 10.30am, just three hours after the attack officially started. The casualties were also not evenly spread among the front. For example, in front of Beaumont Hamel, in one of the Newfoundland brigades, nine out of every ten men became a casualty in just an hour. While they were technically still men that belonged to this battalion, who were still unhurt and ready to fight at the end of the day, it had ceased to exist as a fighting unit. This type of problem would happen all along the front, as units were hit so hard that they simply no longer functioned. In general, of course, the first waves were hit the hardest, with more than half being killed or wounded. And again, of course, the officer corps in these units was hit even harder, with a 75% casualty rate. For the Powell's battalions in the opening wave, the impact of the casualties on their areas of Britain was felt so harshly that we still talk about it today. And while these casualties were bad, it's some very big numbers, 57,000... There could have been a case that it was worth it if all of this sacrifice had accomplished something really meaningful, but it didn't. In fact, for all of these casualties, the British had only reached their goals for a small fraction of the front, and in fact most of the attacking units did not even reach their goals for the first hour of the attack, let alone the first day. It had just been an unmitigated, unrelenting disaster. There has been a lot of thought and research by a lot of very smart people, into why the British failed on July 1st, and why specific areas failed so brutally, and some had much more success. Success or failure on a specific area of the front was an equation that involved many, many variables. Each of them played together to determine if an attack would be successful or not. Everything I'll be talking about here is something that we've touched on at various points over the previous episodes, but it's worth going back and reviewing. There's entire sections of giant books devoted to just this topic. The first variable, and one that is impossible to not discuss, was the relative inexperience of the British troops at all levels, from the newest private up through the ranks to the generals. This inexperience started at a training level, as Sergeant Jim Myers of the 31st Division would discuss in this quote, when talking about the training that he and other units had received, quote, the biggest mistake was made on maneuvers and training, and it was that we were never told what to do in case of failure. All that time we'd gone backwards and forwards, training, doing it over and over again like clockwork, and then when we had to advance, when it came to the bit we didn't know what to do. Nothing seemed to be arranged in case of failure. End quote. I'm not sure I blame the British officers too much in this regard. Sure, they probably should have had some discussions about what to do when things went wrong, as they always do. However, this type of information and the ability to act on it was one of those skills that only seems to come with experience. And that's something the men just didn't have. And I don't know a good way to get that for them. The next variable was how the troops positioned themselves before the attack. Overall, many units crept out into no man's land during the preparatory bombardment, and then once it lifted, they tried to quickly rush the German lines. Other units just did the second part of this and rushed the German lines from the British front line. It would only be in less than about a quarter of the battalions involved in the fighting that would use the slow method of moving across, walking into the attack, And this is a pretty small number, but it is generally the units that people like to talk about. Again, because of that tragedy thing that I talked about a couple episodes ago. Sure, it was a dumb move. It was real dumb. However, there really is not much correlation between what the infantry did and their level of success. The third variable was generally confusion, which probably ties into the training and experience as well. Almost without exception, there was a huge amount of confusion in the British units after the attack began. This was experienced the worst in the areas where the British were marginally successful, not the ones where they completely failed. In these areas, there was simply no real clear idea of where the first units had gotten to in their attack, and this prevented any kind of effective support from being given to them. The hope was that aerial reconnaissance would be of some assistance in this area, But it was found that the situation was just too confused for aviators to be able to provide really good information. All three of these variables, though, you know, the experience of the troops, how they handled their attack, the confusion, were just a tiny piece of the equation, and in reality made only a small difference when compared to the next two variables, and both of them have to do with the artillery. I feel like we've discussed the artillery quite a bit but it was the most important thing on the battlefield at this point. If the artillery did not do what it needed to do, it did not matter how well trained the British were or how quickly they could traverse the distance between the lines. It was not going to matter. This is why the failure of the artillery to properly neutralize the German defenses and the German guns was so critical. As we discussed last episode, success was almost directly correlated with how well the British artillery prepared the German positions, and the artillery behind the lines for the attack. So I don't think I need to retread that information. However, one thing that I did not discuss in relation to the artillery preparations, and one thing that I did not even consider until I read Three Armies on the Somme by William Philpott, was that all of the artillery fire had a downside, at sort of a strategic or operational level. The British artillery preparations were long, and they were rigid, and they were tightly controlled, Because of this, the Germans were able to determine the exact boundaries of the coming British attack, especially on the northern end, because the artillery fire just stopped at one point. The British did not have the guns or the ammunition to randomly fire where they did not need to, so they could only use their artillery fire in certain points where they were going to attack, and the Germans figured this out. This was a problem but was unavoidable, and it didn't really probably greatly affect the outcome, it basically just told the Germans though that they didn't need to worry about anything to the north. The problems for the artillery did not stop when the infantry went forward, and instead sort of compounded in on itself. They were supposed to lay down a creeping barrage to protect the infantry, but it rarely worked. To make it work, they they had to keep their fire right in front of the advancing troops, but the fire almost always outran them. The roots of this was in the fact that, since there was not a great way to guarantee that the artillery would know exactly what was happening at the front, their only option was to fire by timetable, which is something we've discussed before, they were advancing their timetable too quickly, and when the infantry got delayed, there was no way to sort of adjust these timetables because of the confusion, they didn't know where they were, they couldn't pull their fire back or risk hitting their own infantry. This resulted in the infantry often seeing their artillery fire running away from them. All of these factors combined in various ways to create the failure of the British attacks on July 1st, and in the areas where they mostly succeeded, these weren't as prevalent. It is worth noting that the Germans also had their own beliefs on why the British attacks failed. They were doing post-mortems just sort of like what I'm doing now. These beliefs were founded upon information gained from British prisoners and after interviewing many of these soldiers they came up to the following conclusions first the british reinforcements had great difficulty in getting to the fighting due to the effectiveness of german artillery fire second the german wire was far more effective than the british believed it would be third the germans put far more re- put up far more resistance than the british expected And finally, because the German machine guns waited until the assaulting troops were quite close before opening fire, they did not waste ammunition and gave away their positions too soon, resulting in a large amount of confusion in the attacking units. This has been just a brief overview of why the British attacks failed. If you want more information, I highly recommend checking out some of the plethora of available literature on this subject, like The First Day on the Psalm by Martin Middlebrook. While the day had been extremely rough on the British, it had not been a walk in the park for the Germans either. Many German soldiers had been taken prisoner, and one of them would later talk to an English journalist about what his experience had been like in the hours leading up to the attack. He described what it was like to huddle in the German fortifications, tightly packed with soldiers, with little food or water to go around. Quote, those who went outside were killed or wounded. Some of them had their heads blown off. "...and some of them had both legs torn off, and some of them their arms. But we went on taking turns in the hole, although those who went outside knew that it was their turn to die, most likely. At last, some of those who came into the hole were wounded, some of them badly, so that we had to lay in blood. When the attack came, while it was rough at the front, back at headquarters, there was a bit of panic. The German generals had known that the British were going to attack, although the French were a bit more of a surprise." However, in all cases, the ferocity of the attack and the fact that it would continue past the first day was a great concern. While on most of the front, there was no threat of an actual breakthrough. This was something that was only really a concern in the south. Just the attrition of the situation was problematic. The problem of of just sheer manpower shortages was only exacerbated by how things were handled with reinforcements. Reinforcing units were often fed in piecemeal into either counterattacks or to try and shore up the line. And this resulted in many getting chewed up by artillery, fire, and infantry before they could have any real effect. In his book Through German Eyes, The British on the Somme by Christopher Duffy, he spends a bit of time discussing this problem, and he places the blame for it on the general structure of the German army at this time. In the German army, officers were often empowered to make independent decisions. They were informed of their goals and then were given at least some level of freedom on how to accomplish it. This system worked great most of the time, and, it, and it is part of why the German army is often, often seems to be so superior in everything that we're talking about. However, when this system was stressed, like what was happening on the Somme, it often left each unit sort of fending for itself. At every level of command, all that any officer could do when under pressure was to take whatever he had access to and send it forward. They were just trying to fulfill their orders to hold the ground. One officer would write after the attack that, "...every battle brings with it a considerable mixing of our forces, but here on the Somme, this unwelcome phenomenon assumed dimensions which made an orderly conduct of the battle extremely difficult." The root cause was that the enemy were launching attacks in overwhelming force, and we had to put together all the possible units at hand and throw them into the action, where the need was most urgent. If the German defense had been more unified, and they did not constantly throw in reinforcements as soon as possible into counterattacks, it's possible that they would have lost more ground but saved more lives." This was not the plan for the German 2nd Army, though, which caused Falkenhayn to make a move quickly after the first day of the attack. This move was to replace the chief of staff of the German 2nd Army. Its commander, Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, would write on July 3rd that, quite apart from the fact that it is inappropriate to change a chief of staff at a moment of supreme crisis, such a major measure also amounts to a lack of confidence in the relevant commander, who does in fact bear the ultimate responsibility for any decisions that were taken. This in turn diminishes the commander in the eyes of his subordinates. As I've already noted, the blame for what happens lies at the door of the army high command itself, which did not arrange in time for reinforcements to be allocated to the second army. End quote. The replacement as second army's chief of staff would be Colonel von Lossberg, He brought with him a new method of defense which went against what the Germans had been doing for pretty much the entire war on the Western Front, where they had been a bit obsessive about trying to hold on to every foot of land, often involving strongly held front lines and heavy casualties. Here is John Keegan from his book The First World War, describing Lossberg's ideas. Lossberg's intervention caused the defenders to abandon the practice of concentrating on the defense of the front line, and to construct a defense in depth, based not on trenches, but on lines of shell holes, which the British artillery created in profusion. The forward zone was to be thinly held to minimize casualties, but ground lost was, be- was to be speedily retaken by deliberate counterattacks launched by organized reserves held in the rear." End quote. There was also a shakeup of command on the German army's front for the Second Army, and it was split in two because it had grown so much because of all the reinforcements pouring in. The northern half was going to still be the Second Army, but it was now under the command of General Gallwitz, while the southern area was under the command of General Von Bello, as the Second Army had been before, but it was now called the First Army. However, Galwitz was also put in command of the German front that encompassed Bello's army which made Galwitz both the commander of and at the same level as von Bello, both at the same time. This caused a bit of a conflict of interest which will play a part in our further story. Even with the failures of the first day of the attack there was still no question on the British side that the attack would continue. Unfortunately for the British commanders They did not really have the time to stop, get all the information, reflect, learn, and put what they learned into action, because they felt, and rightly so, that if they wanted to capitalize on the confusion caused by the first attacks, they had to launch another effort as soon as possible. With this fact in mind, Haig and Rawlinson had to start making decisions on July 1st, as early as the middle of the afternoon while only having woefully incomplete information about what had happened. These decisions would have far-reaching and long-lasting effects on the course of the battle to come. What they did know was that they had seen the most success in the south, and they had almost completely failed in the north. This put them in a situation where the most important pieces of geography were still in German hands, and where they had advanced in the south the most important areas were still in front of them because they were all in the German second line. This put them in a position where they would have to decide on whether they would double down on failure and try again or they would double down on success and try and keep going. Initially, as was so often the case, Haig and Rawlinson disagreed. Haig wanted to shift all focus to following up on whatever successes the British had on their first day, This would mean continuing the attack in the south, where the advances had been the greatest. Rawlinson thought the opposite. He wanted to double down in the north and send troops to try again on that area of the front. Joffre agreed with Rawlinson, although the French commander was mostly just wanting the British to attack away from his troops, wherever it was, so that the French would not get pulled into any needless attacks while they were still embroiled in Verdun. In this case, Haig, as the commander, would just kind of tell Rawlinson what to do, which is what he sometimes did. And so it was decided that the next set of British attacks would be launched on the southern end of the front. This decision was pretty much would pretty much set the stage for the next five months of attacks. While there had been so much action on July 1st, and both armies were exhausted, that did not mean that the next day did not have things happening during it. The Germans abandoned a few positions that they had held the previous day against British attacks. In almost all of these cases, it was happening more because they wanted to make sure that their troops occupied the best positions, and ones that could not easily be cut off, like the positions at Free Corps, which they abandoned. On the British side, most men spent July 2nd consolidating their positions. There were also a few small attacks to gain small tactical advantages, but this was not the norm. In the south, the British were also trying to get ready for the next stage of their attacks, which involved a lot of hard work. The first requirement was to get all the artillery that needed to go forward, up forward into new positions that were within range of their new targets, and also to get them well supplied so that they could keep firing. The next task was to get the men ready, and that generally meant bringing in new units. All along the front, not just in the south, As many of the beaten up units were taken off the line as soon as possible, and they were replaced with new troops. This was not always possible, but usually there were battalions available to take the place of the worst hit units. The new troops slowly filtered into the line, but the same thing was happening on the German side as well. By July 5th, there would be 11 new German divisions on this sector of the front, and some of these were already beginning to filter in on July 2nd. This greatly solidified the front before the British could do anything about it. One thing that made a huge impression on these reinforcing troops, especially on the British side, were the wounded that they saw coming back from the front, and then also that they saw when they arrived at the front line. Lieutenant Hornshaw of the West Yorkshire Regiment wrote that his unit was able to hear the wounded out between the lines crying for help well before they got to the front, but unfortunately he was not able on his area of the front to render any assistance. The wounded who were miraculously rescued were only beginning their journey, and they would have to travel past all the men getting ready for the next attack, which I'm sure did nothing to help morale. Here is gunner Frank Spencer of the Royal Field Artillery, quote, Still more wounded coming past the gun, day and night. They say that many of our poor wounded were shot by the enemy while trying to crawl back to the cover of our own trenches. But on the other hand, a German doctor and his staff were nicely captured whilst tending to our own wounded. End quote. The problems for the wounded and for the dead was a set of problems that would continue, and the effects of July 1st would continue to be felt in the coming weeks. One of them was more physical than emotional, as described by Corporal joe hoyles there was a terrible smell it was so awful it nearly poisoned you a smell of rotten flesh the old german front line was covered with our bodies there were seven and eight deep and they had all gone black the smell in the units coming off the line even the ones that had a few casualties a grim task awaited the officers who commanded them They began the long task of writing letters to next of kin for all those men who did not make it through the fighting. Lieutenant Edgar Lord, 96th Brigade, 32nd Regiment. Those who know the difficulty of sometimes writing an ordinary letter will get only a small idea of the reluctance to start such a job. One would wish to defer it forever if it were not for the anxiety of their loved ones. And here is Lieutenant Colonel Alfred Irwin, 55th Brigade of the 18th Division. I hardly know how to begin to write this letter at all. It seems almost an impertinence to try and sympathize with you in such a dreadful loss. But I feel it my duty to tell you how your son met his death. He was in command of one of our leading companies in the attack on Mont on the 1st of this month, and led his company most gallantly and with utmost coolness onto the German front-line trench where he was shot. Death must have been absolutely instantaneous.